It's a well-known story. Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. A bunch of young girls start behaving strangely. Rumors swirl, accusations fly. The charge? Witchcraft. In retrospect, the end was tragic. People falsely accused and raked through the mud. The executions. Today, it all seems more like literature than reality. But it's October, and so in celebration, an old, old story is convening its own trial. And this time, we're putting the witch hunt itself on the stand. And we really want answers. Today, the Salem witch trials are an indelible part of American history. They're part haunted folk story, part reminder of the danger of mass fear and suspicion in society. And witch hunt is known synonymously with the unjust victimization of a person or group. So today we're conducting our own foray into the anatomy of a witch hunt. What fuels them? What causes us to cast blind accusations, to demonize and outgroup? What we found is that when you go hunting for witches, it's easy to find yourself working a very dark kind of magic. Trying to cast villains has a way of landing you in that very role. First up, an interview with author and journalist Jeff Chu, and later a short story from Harding Grad Nelson Shake. So grab your broomsticks, ghosts and ghouls. Let the hunt begin. With today's modern media, it seemed that the best place to start in our search of what makes a witch hunt was with the writers and creators of our information that we receive. Today, we bring you an interview from our contributor, Jimmy Shaw, with author and journalist Jeff Chu, whom he spoke to by phone. Jeff Chu has worked for companies such as Time Magazine and Fast Company. I wanted to talk a little bit about questions related to our theme of witch hunting and scapegoating and such. But first, tell us a little bit about your current writing project. I'm working on a nonfiction book for HarperCollins that looks at the intersection between Christianity and homosexuality in America. I am visiting with and telling the stories of people who call themselves followers of Christ who in some way are wrestling with the issue of homosexuality. That doesn't necessarily mean they are gay themselves. It could be a congregation that is dealing with their collective position on the issue. It could be a denomination. It could be a family that's dealt with a family, a family member coming out. So the stories are so rich. The stereotypes in many cases are true, but life is much more complicated than stereotypes than black and white. And with my book, I'm trying to delve a little deeper than we usually are able to in newspapers or on TV. Do you feel like uh, stereotypes are sort of the stock in trade for the narrative that we've got going at this point? I think especially for those of us who don't have a lot of personal experience with minorities, for instance, stereotypes are what we have to work with. There is usually a grain or two of truth in a stereotype, and sometimes those are reinforced by the images that we see in the mass media. So obviously, 
it's what we have to deal with. It's the currency that we have to work with until we can replace it with more realistic portrayals. I get the feeling that your sense is that this cuts both ways, that the dominant sort of media narratives that we live with actually help us engage in stereotyping on both sides of the political spectrum. That has been my experience. Uh, To use somewhat limited terms of liberal and conservative, I find that liberal people have certain stereotypes of conservative religious people and vice versa. And I think those are reinforced in our storytelling individually when we talk to our friends and our family, as well as in storytelling that I am supposed to be doing in my magazines. But they go in all directions. Obviously, most of us would like to think that we're not the ones who are engaging in perpetuating stereotypes, but I think if we stop and examine them, uh, we can find them throughout our own stories and throughout our own conversations. You recently spent some time with the folks at the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas, obviously a church that's infamous in some ways for their protests at military funerals and their relentless attention-seeking and and publicity uh, kinds of engagements, and, of course, for their provocative, uh, some would call hateful rhetoric, which scapegoats gay and lesbian Americans as the cause of, you know, cultural decline, uh, even divine punishment uh, in the U.S. They've been covered pretty widely in the media in one form or another. Why why visit them now? What What is there still, as you see it, what is there still to cover in that story? Well, there are a couple of things. The first thing is they're still pretty influential and disproportionately so for a church with 70 or 75 members. Earlier this year, they had the case before the Supreme Court uh, that they won that affirmed their right to protest at military funerals. Uh, and that was a very important First Amendment case that was of interest to a lot of media companies, for instance. The second thing is I was frustrated that in reading about Westboro, I never really understood what they believed. And for a church that has such outsized influence in America, to not know what that church believes uh, from reading the newspaper, from what I was able to find online, That was frustrating to me. I wanted to get to the bottom of it, and I also wanted to find out what the human face was behind all those signs. We see the signs, but what do these people actually believe, and what do their lives actually look like? Why do they believe what they believe? So those were some of the questions that I went to Kansas with. What did you discover about their beliefs or about them personally? I think the most surprising thing about it was how nice they were. They were hospitable, they were welcoming, and morally speaking, they weren't that conservative. They listen to the same music that everybody else does, all the women work outside the home, they send their kids to public schools, they are not the prudes that you would expect. They swear, they are allowed to drink, they aren't hard-right cultural conservatives in all the ways that one might expect from the rhetoric that they typically use. Another thing that surprised me was how Calvinistic their theology is, uh, by which I mean they're totally hardcore predestination people, and they believe that God decided before the beginning of time that there was this elect that would be in America today, basically them, And we can't choose to be part of that elect. God either chose us or he didn't. 
and their beliefs are not in many ways that far off from uh, pure Calvinistic theology. And that was a surprise to me because so often they're portrayed as this weird fringe group and they actually have a lot in common with churches that you would find all across America. They have a lot in common with churches that we would find across America, you said. Do you feel like that would be unsettling to a lot of folks who sort of see them as radically extreme that we would sort of want to deny the the common threads, particularly maybe the Calvinistic common threads that are running through there? Well, this is the thing about scapegoating and stereotyping, isn't it? That we always want to build more distance. We always want to be farther from the thing that is repellent to us. But the fact is, usually, they're not as far away as we would like to think they are. One of the things that was interesting was meeting up with the Westboro folks a couple weeks after I was in Kansas. They came to New York City to protest the start of gay marriage. We found that in the Bronx, 90% of the passers-by that we interviewed were actually in agreement with what was on the Westboro Baptist Church signs. Many of these people, residents of the Bronx, told us that what was on those signs was right. God does not like gay people. God is not in favor of homosexual behavior. God is disgusted by gay marriage, and I'm using weaker language than is on the signs. But um, we were surprised by the depths of sympathy that Westboro had in those communities. So I hear a lot of the same rhetoric, but just in gentler tones and with more qualifiers like, we're showing you God's tough love. We say this as a Christian brother or sister. But the message is often the same. There are so many things there with Westboro that are that are intriguing. Um, it almost sounds like we can engage in our own kind of scapegoating of the folks at Westboro. Is that how you experience it? Well, it's really, I think, a convenient thing. First of all, Westboro helps us with the scapegoating by doing things that they know will be repellent. So they hang American flags upside down. They drag American flags through the dirt. They step on the American flag. They use language that most of us are raised to believe is not polite. They do those things, and they help people build the distance. But at the same time, we want to build the distance because we want to think we're not hateful like that. We don't talk like that. We're nicer, more loving. God is love. So I think it's a very easy example of an easy case of scapegoating. It's a good illustration for me, though, to pull it back to other churches and other um, examples where it's not so far from us and then the lines get more and more blurry. What is it about that kind of moral panic that plays a role in our uh, treatment of those that we deem to be different? You know, I think everybody wants to be a member of a club. And uh, we see this repeatedly, whether it's a matter of nationality or race or faith or even just the mean girls in the cafeteria. Everybody wants to be a member of a club that is exclusive. You know, clubs that aren't exclusive really aren't that much fun or interesting or intriguing to us. And I think that is something that has just played itself out over human history repeatedly. We see it in the Bible. We see it in churches. We see it in government, um, in war, in all kinds of social practice. And I think 
those who call themselves Christians have to be mindful of that and mindful of the commands that are in the Bible um, to see past those boundaries and to see past those lines and to see things through a more Christ-like lens. Uh, The temptation is always there, though. I think the temptation to find security and stability among those who are more like us is so strong. We want to identify, we want to congregate, and in some sense, we want to close ranks. I was thinking about this oft-repeated quote from Eric Hoffer's uh, book, The True Believer, that talks about social movements. He writes, mass movements can rise and spread without belief in a god, but never without belief in a devil. What is it about devil-making, this practice of naming and blaming some convenient other or outsider for the kinds of ills that we have in our culture? What is it about that that allures us? In your experience, why why perhaps has this kind of devil-making or witch-hunting instinct proven to be a resilient and useful tool, particularly in American political life? Well, there's something weird about human nature, and I see this in my business in the way that journalists cover politics and even society. We want a bad guy. An article or a story is always sexier if there's something to be opposed to. It's harder, honestly, uh, in my experience, to get a story in that's just about positives, that's about do-gooders, and that talks about the, the brilliance of humanity in some way. I think there's always the temptation to look at the dark side, and there's something tantalizing about it, there's something intriguing about it, but we also like to play with the off-putting. You cover the religious and political divides in this country. Um, as we look at these competing narratives and worldviews, aside from the scapegoating that we're talking about with Westboro, um, who are, what are some of the other sort of devils, scapegoats, witches being hunted in our, in our culture? Who, who are the outsiders that we sort of point to in your, in your experience? Um, the immigrant population is a big one right now, I would say. Um, you know, you look at what's been going on in Arizona with border control and the rhetoric and you think, okay, these are people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, and we need to do something about it. That's the explanation for what's going on there. Again, that's a conversation where it's too easy to look in from the outside and say, oh, we're not like that. I think the best example of witch hunting and scapegoating that you will see over time is in the Christian church itself. Why else would we have so many different denominations? I think the strength of the American church in some ways, and I mean that sarcastically, is our ability to divide and our ability to to find these splinter issues that force us to break away and build a new church. There would be no reason to break away and build a new church if it were not for the ability to find something so objectionable about the people on the other side of the church aisle that you could not even sit in prayer with them on a Sunday. So I think there's a ton of scapegoating and witch hunting that goes on in American Christianity, and you can see the evidence of that just by all the different denominations that we've ended up with. So we've actually ended up with a kind of failure of grace, wherein in church life, the default setting is to differentiate and look for the kinds of things that will lead and have led us over and over again to 
separating to walking out and starting a new thing over and over again. I mean, the recurring theme is that someone says to another person, I disagree with you on this issue. And the implication there is, I don't think you're doing what God wants us to do. And I believe that what I'm doing is what God wants us to do. So there's a judgment there, and someone is being made to feel and to be seen as less of a Christian than another person. You're a Christian. You're a descendant of immigrants. You're gay. Um, Perhaps, maybe worst of all, in our present climate, you're a member of the media, all of which get caricatured at some point. Do you personally experience these caricatures? Do they affect you? How do you... How do you feel and read these kinds of things individually? I have experienced persecution on every one of those counts that you mentioned in some form or another. I have experienced discrimination as a Christian working in the liberal media elite. Uh, I've experienced discrimination as a Chinese person uh, going way back to elementary school and having people say ching chang chong to me. I mean, it's nothing new. Uh, I've experienced discrimination in the context of my family and in the context of church as a gay person. I have had longtime friends who looked me in the eye and turned in the other direction when they learned that I identify as gay. So all of these things, I mean, I'm pretty used to being a minority and I'm pretty used to, to, to being different. And it does make me want to rebel against stereotypes, though, and not play into what people expect me to be, because all of those words, all of those labels come with expectations. Do you feel like there are specific practices we can take up, things that we can do to help resist these kinds of caricatures, these kinds of um, scapegoating kinds of behavior? I think, you know, a lot of it is just common sense and putting into practice some of the things that we learned in Sunday school, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, love your neighbor as yourself, just those very basic things would go a long way if we actually thought about what they meant. Practically speaking, is it a function of holding them at a convenient distance so as to be able to hold on to the stereotype? There have been tons of studies that have been done that show that intimacy, by which I mean spending time with people who aren't like yourself, does wonders for breaking down barriers. It destroys discrimination when you actually have to put a human face and a human personality next to the stereotype that you have. So I think the more we desegregate, and I use that word to mean breaking down barriers of all kinds, not just racial ones, the better off we'll be. It's going to take a long time and a lot of concerted effort. Gradually, we'll see over time things change, one hopes. But I think especially in the context of the church, it'll take more effort perhaps than than outside the church. Which brings us full circle back to your visit to see the folks at Westboro Baptist through the eyes of personal contact, through an actual visit and conversation and relationship. What do we, who are not a part of Westboro Baptist Church, what do we need to be hearing from them? What would they like us to perceive about them that maybe we're not? Well, it's 
far as what their agenda is, we're never going to be able to satisfy their agenda because they really do believe that the vast majority of us are going to hell and we were foreordained from the beginning of time to be in hell. So there's a certain point beyond which you can't really have a rational discussion because we're talking about matters of belief and faith that are ultimately irreconcilable. I think we can do a better job of responding to their vitriol in a voice of peace and a voice of attempted understanding. That doesn't excuse some of the hateful language that they use and some of the vitriol that they dispense, but I'm just saying that more reasonable conversation is usually a better course of action. When we think about the Christian church and gay and lesbian members of our uh, communities, our churches, our society, what do you feel like churches need to be hearing from our gay and lesbian friends? What what message do we as Christians need to be taking to heart that can be heard at this point? I think just sitting down and listening as opposed to preaching all the time would be one big step. And I mean that from both sides. I, I was in Tennessee not too long ago when I was talking with a a gay activist there who identifies as an Episcopalian, and he was frustrated with gay activists in New York and Washington because he couldn't get support and funding in his efforts to reach out to the faith community. And he said to me, we're never going to make any progress in the South if we're not even willing to sit down and talk with churches. That doesn't mean we're going to agree in the end, but just the ability to have a conversation on both sides would be a huge step. And I guess my challenge to a lot of people would be to ask, what are you afraid of? If you are so convinced that you are in fact right, how does it hurt you at all to extend that hand of grace and sit down to talk with someone? If you are so confident in your position, you really have nothing to lose. So I think just taking that first step and being willing to sit down with a person and give them the courtesy of a conversation and genuinely listening ears would be a huge thing. What we have to look for is the people who may be sure of themselves but are open, and those are the people who are actually going to be able to make progress. Say you always treat people like you like to be. I guess you love being hated for your sexuality. You love when people put words in your mouth about what you believe. Make you sound like a freak, cause if you really believe what you say you believe, you wouldn't be so damn reckless with the words you speak. Wouldn't silently conceal when the liars speak, denying all the dying of the remedy. Tell me, brother, what matters more to you? Uh, tell me, sister. Up next, a piece of short fiction by Harding graduate and current MFA student at Georgia Southern, Nelson Shake. My memory is that we heard the news hours after the fact, a little before lunchtime, but some people found out while still at church, and rather than stay and pray, they ran home to their radios. I wondered what went through those soldiers' minds as ships were going down and as they ran in futility to fight back, what kind of hopelessness careened in their heads. Tommy said they were probably having one last hurrah knowing the end was coming and could at least prepare themselves for a couple of seconds to enjoy it and go out in glory. 
and I didn't think that was true. I bet they were scared. I was 11 years old and all my thoughts were about Christmas and what presents I would get and what people did for Christmas in war times and whether or not kids in Germany would get coal because surely not everyone in Germany was bad. And then we heard the news and suddenly there was no room for Christmas, only indignation. It seemed overnight that everybody had something to say about Japan. None of it was nice, which makes sense, I suppose. A few newspaper reporters and photographers came to our apartment complex to get a sort of war-affecting-home story with pictures of hopefully distraught kids so as to emphasize the magnitude and how even the little children, those dear blessed ones, did not go unaffected. Nothing rallies a nation like pictures of frightened kids. And while the heavyset man with the bushy mustache snapped photos, I just remember thinking, why is he taking our picture? We're not in Hawaii. It didn't make sense to be interested in anything other than Hawaii that day. Fathers didn't neck with their wives in the kitchen while they made Sunday lunch. Kids didn't play ball with their dad out front, and everyone stayed in the living room to listen to the radio. Anyone who spoke too loudly over it would be shushed immediately by his entire family. We had a rule in our apartment that we couldn't listen to more than an hour of radio a day, but apparently that rule didn't matter much on that day. Later, we even ate dinner in front of it, which was another broken rule. A lot of rules were broken that day. The worst being in Hawaii, which dribbled over to places like our complex outside of the bay other rules were broken. I think mom eventually realized how much radio we'd been listening to and told me and my brother to go out and play. Go play what? What do you play on a day like this? And besides, it was getting dark by then. But there was enough morose tension in the air that we assumed it best to not argue and went out to the quad where we found Tommy up in a tree pretending to be an Air Force pilot. I think he was under the impression he could rewind time or make reparations of some sort. I don't know. He told us to get into our planes and join him, but we didn't. He asked what we did want to play, and we said we didn't know. Well, we gotta do something, Tommy said. I guess so, I replied, trying to think of anything that remotely seemed worth doing. No, I mean, we gotta do something about all this. He paused, maybe for effect. This stuff today. I didn't really know what Tommy was driving at. Here we were half an ocean away from Hawaii, which seemed like separate galaxies or universes when you're 11 years old, and he's talking about doing something to counterbalance the stuff on the radio. I'm not sure what he said next was even his idea. They're already doing it, you know. Tommy had this way of talking. He'd refer to things as if he'd already told them to you five minutes ago, and with that casual attitude, he'd just keep right on going, which almost forced you to stop and ask him what he was talking about. Hooked you faster than a fish. Everyone knew he did this on purpose to garner attention, but for some reason we couldn't help giving into it every time. So as if on cue, my brother responded, Doing what? Give him blame where blames due, Tommy said with a far-off look in his eyes, if he had some sort of wisdom stocked away in the belief that all things eventually come to this junction. Rarely can 11-year-old boys look like they're endowed with sage insight, but Tommy had the ability to create such a concentrated gaze. How could you argue with that? They've started hitting some of the stores owned by Japs, breaking windows, stealing and breaking stuff. They're sending a message. I wasn't following. Now, rarely can 11-year-old boys look like they're endowed with sage insight, but Tommy had the ability to create such a concentrated gaze. How could you argue with that? They've started hitting some of the stores owned by Japs, breaking windows, stealing and breaking stuff. They're sending a message. I wasn't following. I wore ragged jeans and my brother had shoes with holes in them. What did this have to do with us? I didn't know why then, but I started to wish Tommy would just get back up in the tree to his imaginary plane. Somehow it seemed safer than that concentrated gaze in his eyes. My younger brother, being the ever-inquisitive one, asked what we were going to play. Tommy's musings had failed to keep his interests occupied and he had since moved on. 
Tommy replied, oh, you're not going to play anything. This is a game for the big kids. This, of course, set off the trigger of tears within my brother, and he ran back to our apartment to find consolation in mom's arms. Once only 11-year-olds remained, Tommy turned to me. You know who lives in G16? I shook my head no. Stanley, Tommy said. I knew the kid vaguely, Japanese, really shy at school, always stuck to his mother's side whenever they ventured out of their apartment, which wasn't often. Tommy looked at me smugly. Stanley's not his real name. You know why? And I said, a lot of them take American names when they move over here. That seems suspicious to you, Tommy asked. Honestly, it never had, but under that gaze of Tommy's, I couldn't find the words to articulate why. Tommy was on a roll. Here's why they do it. So no one will know who they really are, what kind of life they left back there. That'd make it harder to figure out what they're up to here. He walked a few steps away, then slowly but strongly whirled around for effect. This probably would have looked ridiculous to an adult, but to any kid, it was dynamic, commanding, captivating. And another thing, Stanley also wasn't at school on Friday. Does that seem weird to you? He was probably sick, I answered. Oh, come on, man, whatever. Tommy can make your own words sound dumb after you said them, and I wasn't bold enough to stick up for myself. If you knew that day was coming up, would you let yourself be seen outside? I asked Tommy, you saying you think he knew? I knew I was now asking questions that only emboldened Tommy's cause, and yet I didn't even try to stop myself. Of course he did. How could he not? They're all the same. He went on to explain how Stanley's absence from school was his first slip-up. What he thought was a wise move in skipping school was really the finger of justice pointing to his guilt. Tommy also had a way of reading minds because at that very moment I was wondering what he was going to do, but see, Tommy would always beat you to the punch, but with a subtle alteration. You know what we're going to do? And just like that, I was complicit. I didn't fight it. What? I asked, my mouth letting it out flatly as if a question mark didn't really exist. We're going to do something about all this, this stuff today. And here the signal had arrived, that you could go now. Tommy's statement meant he had a plan. Your job became simply to show up, and that appointed time was school the next day. All during class on Monday, Tommy exhibited this knowing look which said he was waiting until recess for his moment. And when the bell rang, he didn't bolt for the playground. He took his time with measured steps and reached the boxed-in gravel long after all the swings and teeter-totters had been claimed. I followed. We found Stanley making a feeble attempt to cross the monkey bars. Tommy called his name with an affected Asian accent and asked if he wanted to play hide-and-go-seek. Stanley shrugged his shoulders as if to say, why not, but he was still on the monkey bar, so his acquiescence resembled a pitiful stab at completing a pull-up. He let himself drop to the ground and followed us over to the corner tree. You can seek first, Stanley, said Tommy. Just count here at this tree. Though I wasn't the one talking, I remember looking over at Tommy and realizing he and I were standing with the exact same kind of intimidating posture. Stanley looked down at the tree and said, there are ants all at the bottom. No one said you gotta stand in it, stupid. Just keep your feet away, said Tommy. I think I nodded. Stanley placed his palms on the trunk and put his forehead against the backs of his hands, closing his eyes. He began to count, but only got to two before Tommy threw his weight into Stanley's back to pin him against the tree before tying him to it. Stanley tried to put up a fight, but he was so much smaller than Tommy. There wasn't anything he could do. I handed Tommy the rope. He was either really good at tying knots or had practiced the night before because it seemed like hardly any time had passed before the hemp cord cleaved Stanley flush against the tree his feet now firmly planted in the anthill. Already chaotic lines of fire ants were ascending his smooth, hairless legs and crawling down into his socks. He began to whimper. Tommy started kicking Stanley and launched racial slurs at him. I'd heard Tommy's dad talk like that, but never Tommy. Other than that, I don't remember noises. I couldn't hear the playground. Everything slowed down. 
I couldn't even really see anything except the tree and Stanley, and the sun seemed really bright. Even Tommy seemed to disappear. It felt as if this was going on forever, as if it had no end. When did it even begin? And maybe in my mind it has no end. I stayed silent and did nothing. Stanley screamed and saved his life. Turns out he had an allergic reaction of sorts to the fire ants, so it was good the teachers heard him shouting when they did and ran out to untie him. The ropes and tree must have been the only things supporting Stanley because as soon as there was slack, he fell to the ground. The teachers picked him up and took him to the hospital. He was there for three days, I heard. When we each met with the principal, I could hear him and Tommy talking while waiting my turn in the hall. He tried to explain the nobility of his intentions while throwing the blame on me, but apparently the principal knew right away he was lying because Tommy was the troublemaker while I was the good student. Supposedly, I would never do something like hurt another human being. I was above that. But I wonder. I wonder, and that's my memory. In a good memory, my family would have Stanley and his parents over for dinner all the time. We would break bread and share a meal together, and something magical would happen because reparation and understanding would take place around and above our blue checkered tablecloth. In a good memory, Stanley and I would go on to the same junior high, high school, and be roommates together in college right now, hanging out every chance we get. But he and his family moved two months later. I don't know where they went. I never heard. And just one day, their apartment stood vacant. Tommy got what he wanted. And I didn't do anything. And Tommy got what he wanted. Thank you for joining us today on An Old, Old Story. I've been your host, Alan Elrod. Our episode today was created and produced by Zachary Crow and myself. Our special thanks to contributors Nelson Shake and Jimmy Shaw and also interviewee Jeff Chu. Once again, we'd like to say thank you, and please join us again next month on An Old, Old Story. Over the mountain, down in the valley, lives a former talk show host. Everybody knows his name. He said there's no doubt about it. It was a myth, the fingerprints I've seen them all And man, they're all the same Well, the sun gets weary And the sun goes down Ever since the watermelon And the lights come up On the black pit town Now somebody says What's a better thing to do? Well, it's not just me And it's not just you This is all around the world